devastation, and hope in Oklahoma. Today, Tuesday, May 21st, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama declares a major disaster in Oklahoma. We ask what makes a tornado so brutal and why do so many of them occur in the U.S.? Also today, the list of officially approved candidates is out for Iran's presidential elections. Some voters are upset that some high-profile candidates are not on it. I'm already hearing people saying, well, you know, we are not going to vote this year. What is the point of voting when everybody is carefully selected? This is not a healthy race. Plus, a hacker helps to crowdsource radiation levels in and around the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan. So I got out a few of my devices and put together a monitor and opened a Twitter account and started tweeting my readings. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We normally focus on news from across the globe, but we begin today's program here at home with the tragic events in Oklahoma. Emergency crews are still combing through the debris left behind by a massive tornado yesterday in the Oklahoma City suburb of Moore. They're checking and rechecking to make sure they don't miss any survivors or bodies trapped below the rubble. This woman in Moore says her neighborhood was devastated. Everything was covered just in this debris. It was a mixture of insulation and grass and dirt and power lines had just been snapped and broken and were laying over the streets everywhere. It was just it was just really chaotic. President Obama today offered his condolences and pledged federal aid to help with the recovery effort. Harold Brooks is a research meteorologist for the National Severe Storms Laboratories in Norman, Oklahoma. He says tornadoes are constantly on people's minds in Oklahoma. You sort of learn to deal with it as you learn to deal with any other threat you would have in life. That feeling of, you know, we've seen this exact thing before. Oklahoma, along with Texas and Kansas, I mean, this is where most of the country's tornadoes hit. Our program looks out at the wider world. But another statistic that may be even more telling, something like 75 percent of the entire world's tornadoes occur in North America. I mean, this mostly happens in the U.S.? If you look at a map of the world, what you see in the central part of the U.S. is when the winds are out of the south, they're, come, they're bringing air from over the Gulf of Mexico. So there's our warm, moist air that we want to have for tornadoes. And the winds aloft coming out of the west means it's coming from over the Rocky Mountains. And the, bringing an air mass over a wide, high range of mountains is the best way to make it relatively dry and cold aloft. And so there's no place else on the planet that combines those geographic features in the same way. So this is the place where most of the strongest and violent tornadoes occur. Now, the F scale that measures forces of tornadoes, it's named for the late meteorologist Ted Fujita. Who was he and how did he become so focused on tornadoes? Ted Fujita started his life as an engineer in Japan, and actually his first damage survey was associated with the atomic bombs in, in 1945, when the Japanese government didn't even know how many bombs had hit them, what had occurred, and Fujita did his first damage survey and was able to show that it was one blast and that it occurred perhaps 1,200 feet above the ground, and actually the U.S. eventually ended up accepting his numbers as being a better description of what had happened than what they thought when they dropped the bomb. And uh, after World War II, Ted immigrated to the United States and started to work at the University of Chicago and became interested in extreme weather events. 
and his damage survey skills that he had honed in Japan actually were very, very useful for understanding how winds affected structures. And he just started working on that in the 1950s and developed the Fujita scale by the early 1970s. And it was adopted by the National Weather Service in the mid to late 1970s. And what does Ted Fujita's gauge, the Fujita scale, actually measure? It's basically looking and saying, okay, what was the worst thing that this tornado did? And then use that to guess what the winds were. How were tornadoes measured before Fujita? Uh, Before Fujita, tornadoes were measured as tornadoes. They really weren't measured in any way. Harold, there is debate right now, in fact, as to how strong the tornado was that hit Moore, whether it was an F4. Where does that discussion sit right now? There are about 15 people out doing detailed damage surveys. The Weather Service was able to estimate that it was a, at least F4 yesterday just based on, on some of the video we were able to see on television. And Harold, I mean, given what you said earlier, just how uh, tightly knit and close the communities are in your area around Moore and Norman, how are you doing today? I know some folks who were very close, and in fact, uh, I know a, uh, one of the teachers at the elementary school where the fatalities occurred, uh, and she's certainly physically okay. I'm not sure how she's doing emotionally, but so far, fortunately, I don't know of anyone personally who was seriously injured, uh, although that still may change because you, know, you haven't heard from everybody yet. Well, good luck to everyone there in the recovery. We're thinking of you. Harold Brooks, a research meteorologist for the National Severe Storms Laboratories in Norman, Oklahoma. Thanks for your time, Harold. Thank you very much. Disaster responses vary depending on the kind of disaster involved. With a tornado, the frantic search and rescue phase will be followed by months and years of rebuilding. With a nuclear disaster, the dangers can be much more long-term, but also often hidden and uncertain. A couple of years ago, we reported on a grassroots effort to gather radiation data in Japan following the tsunami there and subsequent meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. It was a fairly ragged effort at the time, but today it's become the go-to source of information on radiation levels across the country. Here's reporter Catherine Winter. It's a sunny spring morning just outside Tokyo. Joe Moras hooks a radiation detector outside the back window of a little red car. Okay, now I have to figure out where we're going. He's trying to find a route he hasn't driven before so he can take new radiation readings. He decides to drive around a nearby lake and through some farm areas. Head north. Since the nuclear accident at Fukushima Daiichi two years ago, dozens of volunteers have been driving around Japan, testing radiation and posting their readings online. SafeCast volunteers have taken close to 10 million separate readings. Nobody's made more measurements than Joe Moras. But now I've driven the last 18 months close to 50,000 kilometers, so about one and a half times around the world. Moras is an engineer. He's also a hacker. Hacker in the sense of person who alters machines to make them more useful. He's lived in Japan for decades. When the tsunami struck two years ago and triggered a nuclear meltdown, he wanted to do something to help. People were desperate for information about where radiation from the plant was falling. So I got out a few of my devices and put together a monitor and opened a Twitter account and started tweeting my readings. Then Maras discovered that other people had the same idea. He found SafeCast on the Internet. I think you're right. I think we should solder down this encoder and then uh, then try it again. Now he tinkers with machines at the SafeCast office in Tokyo with other volunteers. Some are Japanese and some are expats, but the expats tend to be the ones willing to do the interviews. It could just be soldering this thing back could do the trick, right? Peter Franken is from Holland. He's head of technology at a Japanese financial services company by day, but he spends evenings here 
wielding a soldering iron or Skyping with distant SafeCast volunteers. People at MIT, in Europe, in Los Angeles. When the world last spoke with Franken two years ago, SafeCast's portable radiation detection systems fit in a small suitcase, but they've made them smaller and smaller. So this looks like ordinary kind of thing. You can clip it on your belt and you can be casual, but inside is a Geiger counter. They've put Geiger counters on cars and trucks and bikes. They're working on a drone that can carry a detector into areas too dangerous for humans. All those devices have gathered a lot of data. Two years ago, SafeCast's map had a lot of blank space. Now it has more detailed information about radiation in Japan than any other public source. Now I'm going to zoom out a little bit. As you can see, the entire Tokyo is... All the roads on the map are basically filled by dots. The dots are radiation readings. The map is color-coded, so you can see where levels are higher. One thing this data reveals is that being near the nuclear plant doesn't necessarily put you in danger, and being far away doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. Radiation didn't spread in a tidy circle. There are hot spots here and there, depending on things like how the wind blew and whether there were hills. So in cities, for like Fukushima City or Koryama City, there are really big differences street by street. And that's why, you know, measurement street by street became more relevant, because I'm not safe until I know my street is safe. There are official radiation measurements, the government measures, but it doesn't provide this much detail, and not everybody trusts the government data. SafeCast software and devices are all open source, and anyone can use the data. Franken says it's being used by researchers around the world, and even by the government in some Japanese cities. You know, there's lots of things that can come from it, which we can't imagine today, but as it is available, people suddenly say, I want to tie this data with this data. For example, you can tie specific medical symptoms to location or radiation levels. That kind of research hasn't been possible in the past. You know, if you look at the Cold War, Chernobyl, and all the other accidents, they have one thing in common. The amount of data available is very limited, and most of the data was subjectively measured by governments, etc. So now as society, we have a huge chance to put their hands together, and at least let's do a really, really good job at measuring it, so that as things happen over time, maybe we can get a much better understanding of what it actually means for individuals. SafeCast volunteers are still filling in holes in the map, and they're going back to places they already measured to see how things are changing. They've found that in some areas, radiation levels have dropped more than you'd predict, just based on half-life. It's not clear why. Maybe because of erosion or natural deposits of new topsoil. And now SafeCast is launching a new project. It just got a grant to use its crowdsourcing techniques to measure air quality in Los Angeles and Detroit. The idea, once again, is to use regular folks to gather data no one has gathered before so people can find out what they're breathing and share that information with anyone who wants it. For The World, I'm Catherine Winter. Catherine is a reporter for the public radio series Burn from Sound Vision Productions. You can see one of SafeCast's radiation maps and shots of their handmade portable radiation detectors at theworld.org. You've likely heard the name Rob Ford. He's the mayor of Canada's largest city, Toronto, and he's got a gift for attracting bad publicity. He's been in hot water for, well, let's go down the list, soliciting donations for his personal charity on City Hall letterhead, getting arrested on a DUI charge in Florida and denying it happened, and drunkenly berating some fans at a hockey game. But the latest allegation against Mayor Ford overshadows all that. This time, it's a cell phone video that appears to show Ford smoking crack cocaine. Two reporters for the Toronto Star newspaper were shown the video. One of them is Robin Doolittle. Robin, tell us where this video came from. 
About uh, two months ago, the investigations editor, uh, Kevin Donovan, and I wrote a story about Mayor Rob Ford's battle with alcohol and how he was asked to leave a military gala because individuals felt he appeared to be impaired. Shortly after that, I was contacted by a source who said that they claimed to have video of Mayor Rob Ford smoking crack cocaine. And two weeks ago, Kevin and I viewed that video, and we believe it indeed does show Mayor Rob Ford smoking something that appears to be crack cocaine. Right. And you watched the video three times. Is it clear for you? I mean, you cover Mayor Rob Ford. Is it clear for you that it's him in the video? We were just in the backseat of a car, watching it on an iPhone. We had no way to verify the video at that point. But what I can say is that we watched it three times. It was crystal clear. It appeared to be shot in HD. He was sitting in sunshine. To us, it was very, very clear. What do the people who had the video want? The individual who contacted us about this was very clear from the beginning that they want $100,000. The star was not prepared to pay this. Has Mayor Ford made a statement about this video? He spoke really briefly about this on Friday. He called it ridiculous, but he didn't give any sort of fulsome statement, and he didn't really take questions about it. His brother, Doug Ford, who is a counselor, has spoken in some other local media saying that he's never seen his brother do anything like coke. He also questioned whether the idea of trying to sell the video is extortion. I mean, if anybody's going after Mayor Ford, it might be the gossip website Gawker, which has also seen this video. Now they're trying to raise money to buy it through a crowdfunding site. And the campaign's been called Crackstarter. It's already raised nearly $90,000. What do you think of Gawker's efforts to get their hands on the video? I mean, I think it's a significant ethical question. Certainly one of the concerns for the star about paying $100,000 for this. There's a huge public interest in this information being made public. On the other hand, do you want to give that much money to drug dealers? And the people who would be signing the video are self-identified drug dealers. Robin Doolittle, one of two reporters at the Toronto Star who's seen a video that appears to show the mayor of Toronto smoking crack. Robin, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Support for the Burn series from Sound Vision Productions comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. The World is supported in part by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who can make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's a presidential election in Iran next month. It's definitely one to pay attention to, given how prominent Iran is on the U.S. foreign policy agenda. And today, a very big development in the run-up to that vote. Two very high-profile candidates were barred from running by Iran's supreme religious authorities. One is a moderate, former President Ali Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani. He could have been a popular vote-getter. The other is a former chief of staff for current president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Helping to sort through all of this is Iranian journalist Shirin Jafari. She says the barring of Ahmadinejad's handpicked successor did not surprise most Iranians. Rahim Mashai, he was somebody very close to Ahmadinejad, and he was not obviously in the good books of the supreme leader. And to some degree, it was something that people could see him being disqualified. But the biggest surprise was um, Rafsanjani. Iranians and Iran watchers were holding their breath to see who gets qualified. And this is a I think this is a key moment in the Islamic Republic's history. 
Right. So Rahim Mashai, former chief of staff for Ahmadinejad, a former president, Rafsanjani, both barred. Have you heard anything from Tehran about how people have reacted to this? You know, this is coming out uh, after the 2009 election, which we know what happened. Right. 2009 elections, of course, sent people in mobs into the street. They were angry with the results. What do you think this decision tells us about where power lies in Iran today? This shows that this election is going to be a race between candidates that are carefully selected, who are probably most of them loyalists to the regime and not people who are from different factions. I mean, a few days ago, Shireen, you told us that uh, the candidates would be vetted to see if they could be legitimate candidates, if they qualify. I mean, a former president and a current chief of staff for the current president, if they don't qualify, who does? Exactly. I think this is very important because Rafsanjani, he was considered one of the pillars of the Islamic revolution. And now him being out of the race, Khamenei is putting his foot down here. And um, it shows that it's a race between the two factions of the Islamic Republic. And this goes back in the history. Rafsanjani was somebody who's supposed to be um, the supreme leader and he gave power to Khamenei instead and he became the president. Now Khamenei and Rafsanjani has been you know, racing each other and um, rivaling each other for power over the years. And right now it shows that Khamenei is somehow uh, winning the race. So, Shireen, is this a setup for uh, more tumult uh, next month? This is something that we don't know yet because... Rafsanjani not being in the game, I'm already hearing people saying, well, you know, we are not going to vote this year. What is the point of voting when everybody is carefully selected and this is not a healthy race? So we don't know. Maybe a lot of people would opt out of voting and others who would vote. You know, there's not a lot of choice right now. Iranian journalist Shirin Jafari, she was telling us about the decision today by Iran's electoral watchdog to bar two key candidates from standing in the country's presidential race next month. Thank you, Shirin. Thank you, Marco. Last year's presidential election in Egypt gave that country its first Islamist president, but not much stability. The president's party, the Muslim Brotherhood, and his many opponents continued to jockey for power. And Egyptians have other worries, too, a security vacuum and a looming economic crisis. Amid all that, Egyptian artists don't expect much encouragement from their government. But for the moment, they're taking advantage of a new margin of freedom and using public spaces to try and reach wider audiences. Ursula Lindsay reports from Cairo. As you walk past a particular shop in downtown Cairo, you notice something strange. A large face nearly fills the entire window, and its eyes follow you as you move. The installation is the work of Ganzir, an artist who has created some of the most memorable street art in the past two years, and the tech-savvy Yasmin Elayet, who describes herself as an interaction designer. It uses a projector and the motion sensor from an Xbox to make the eyes move. Every day it features a different face and gets different reactions. The artists often come to observe. El Ayat. I remember there was a street sweeper in the early morning, uh, and then he noticed, he actually noticed that what was happening, and he dropped everything he was doing, and he started to play with it and interact with it and figure out how it works, and try to peek inside, see if someone's controlling it or playing a game on him. And then some kids, are, uh, a group of girls from school were passing by at the same time, and they started giggling, oh my God, he's watching me, and then like uh, running back and forth, trying to trick the, you know, the guy who's watching them. Elayat says the point is to engage the public in a kind of conversation that doesn't usually exist here, about who has the right to monitor who. 
Around the corner, a small crowd gathers in one of the neighborhood's beautiful, dilapidated old buildings, as Marion and Ghazi, a French-Tunisian artist couple, perform a dance called I'm Nobody's Shadow on the theme of freedom. This performance was part of the Downtown Contemporary Arts Festival, which also featured experimental performances from around the world, concerts, film screenings, and public art. One of the festival's goals was to revitalize an art scene that stagnated under the Mubarak regime because of censorship, nepotism, and a lack of vision, says its director, Ahmed El Attar. There has been a, a major disintegration of the art and culture scene in Egypt over the last 30, 40 years. We come out of a revolution and we look around, and art and culture, like everything else, are in, in a terrible state. The festival took place in central Cairo, the epicenter of the revolution, Ever since the ouster of Hosni Mubarak, it has also been the site of constant conflict, of protests and bloody clashes. People realized, well, the public space is theirs. They took it back. They're demonstrating. They're expressing themselves. But we also need to, you know, go back to the public space as a place of enjoyment, as an artistic space, as a space where people can meet and sit and and enjoy being there. This is still new and revolutionary here. Because Mubarak's police state treated public space as the regime's property and essentially loaned it to the public. Now, people are taking charge of public space to express their anger and creativity. For Genzir, who has painted striking murals criticizing the army and memorializing dead protesters, the most important thing is to make art that, as he says, shakes things up. The worst thing, he says, is to get no reaction. I think any good work of art has to get like a really positive reaction or a really negative reaction. If it gets like nothing, if it's like in between, then it's probably like this meant nothing to anybody, you know? We are speaking in a large old apartment Genzir shares with several other artists. Every month, they put on a show in one of its rooms, calling on friends and acquaintances to contribute. Egypt's cash-strapped conservative Islamist government can't be relied on these days for funding. But on the other hand, state censors are leaving artists alone. When he informed government officials of the festival's events, Elatar says, they agreed to everything except the street performances. But the thing is, we were already in the streets doing the event. So we did it anyway. So they're still in their old mentality, but they are impotent. They can't go down and forbid things. And we're taking advantage of this. Will this last? I have no clue. I hope it does. Many Egyptian artists share Elatar's sense of uncertainty, and urgency. The economic and political situation in Egypt is dire. But artists are freer than they have been in a long time to share their work with the public. And they're seizing their chance. For The World, I'm Ursula Lindsay in Cairo. Find more of our coverage of the arts post-Arab Spring, including a feature on Arab hip-hop, all at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, the European Union has a rule that all of its business must be translated into all 23 official EU languages. Some would say one would suffice. It's tempting, of course. With English, you get through everywhere in the whole world. On the other hand, I'm always saying, if you want to do business, you've got to speak the language of the client. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic 
now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Apple is the world's most valuable company. It also makes things many of us love. So some of you may even be taking it personally that Apple is on the ropes today. The public scrutiny is over charges that Apple Inc. avoids paying billions of dollars in taxes every year. Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, today denied that. He was being grilled by a Senate subcommittee that released a report detailing the accusations. The report says Apple has three international subsidiaries based in Ireland but claims no tax residency there. The Senate subcommittee is investigating if Apple broke any laws. Recently, similar tax avoidance strategies were used by Google, Starbucks, and Amazon, causing anger in the United Kingdom. Margaret Hodge is a member of the British Parliament. She chairs the Public Accounts Committee and is working to bring these tax avoiders to what she calls justice. Uh, Margaret Hodge, how much money are we talking about? Do you know that's a very good question to which we haven't got the answer because what we're uncovering here in the UK and it's mirrored in what appears to be uncovered in the Apple case in the US is that there is a systemic uh, abuse, really, of the tax system across all companies in that they artificially arrange their uh, tax affairs in such a way so that the profits get all located in very low tax jurisdictions or in tax havens, and they therefore avoid paying a fair rate of tax on the profits they earn in jurisdictions like the UK and, in Apple's case, in the US. Now, you're a Westminster. We're hearing the session of Parliament taking place in back of you. Is this something that's been talked about today in London? Oh, yes. What is so interesting is we chanced on the agenda of tax avoidance. It was really through both some very good investigative journalism by Reuters, who started this looking at how Starbucks arranged their accounts in such a way to export profits from the UK to our other jurisdictions. And it also came out of the work of whistleblowers who worked for some of these global companies who were concerned that they weren't paying their fair share of tax. Uh, but we have sort of captured the public mood on this issue because, you know, as is happening globally, we're in tough times here in the UK. Uh, people are seeing their living standards falling. And in that climate, people get particularly exercised when they feel that big corporations or very rich individuals take advantage of very artificial ways of arranging their tax affairs across jurisdictions uh, to avoid paying their fair share on the profits they make within the UK. And, and yet, according to U.S. tax code, Apple and other companies, their tax strategies are legal. How do you fight something that, that is legal? Let me say something about the UK, which may be different from the US. The way in which companies choose to locate their financial arrangements, that system may be legal. But there is then a real question mark, certainly under UK law, as to whether uh, the reality in practice reflects the form of uh, the structures that they've established. So, for example, if you take the Google example in the UK, Google claim that they do not do any selling of advertising space here in the UK. Yet we had evidence 
from whistleblowers who are people who had worked for Google. We had evidence from customers, advertising agencies, who bought from Google, all of whom believed that Google doesn't sell into the UK, it actually sells in the UK. So the form of what they say they do is different from the substance. If that's the case, I think the tax authorities here in the UK should more aggressively question what actually happens on the ground within these companies to see whether or not they are being consistent with the legal arrangements that they have set. Margaret Hodge, chair of the British Parliament's Public Accounts Committee. She's been looking into tax avoidance by multinational corporations. Thank you. Thank you. These are dark days for the European Union as its five-year-old economic crisis deepens. Protests against EU-mandated austerity measures are frequent in hard-hit Southern Europe. But the anger in the South isn't just over economic policies these days. It's also about olive oil. The world's Jerry Haddon explains from Barcelona. In Spain, normally you eat olive oil like this. You grab your little glass oil flask, pour out a golden green puddle on a plate, add some salt, then dip your bread in it. That's it. And it's eaten at every meal. What makes olive oil delicious is the rich textures and flavors and varieties. They vary from region to region, even from orchard to orchard. And in restaurants, chefs sometimes fill oil flasks to match their menus. It's something you wouldn't think to mess with. Unless, apparently, you're the European Union. We're going to make sure that from the 1st of January next year, we can guarantee the quality and authenticity of olive oil. And we do that by have new, having new rules on labeling uh, concerning the category and the origin of the olive oil. and also what's This is an unidentified EU spokesperson in Brussels last week. He was explaining a new law that will force restaurants to serve sealed, throwaway bottles of olive oil to customers. Gone, the refillable glass flasks topped with local oil. This is good news for consumers in Europe. So said the EU official, because now consumers will know exactly where their olive oil comes from, what sorts of olives were used, even its acidity. Some producers have applauded the measure as a way to squeeze low-quality or fraudulent oil out of the market. But the measure has left many Spanish restaurateurs slack-jawed. At a little cafe in a Spanish village called Vaividrera, the owner, a guy named Aris, says he's indignant. Aris drives to his favorite olive orchard about an hour away to buy his oil right out of the presses. He tops up his big five-gallon jugs, and each morning at the cafe, he fills his oil flasks by hand, then sets one on each table just in time for the breakfast crowd. He says he doesn't understand how Europe can have a problem with this. This is bad, he says. They did the same with wine, because before you could buy wine directly from the local vineyard by the leader, filling your own barrels. Then Brussels said, no, you have to buy it in bottles. I think this is just about being able to charge more taxes. A customer this morning, Belen, calls the olive oil directive ridiculous. Next thing you know, they're going to make us shrink-wrapped ice cream sundae, she says. Don't they realize we have other problems to deal with? Such as record high unemployment. Olive oil producers say forcing them to package each serving of oil in little throwaway bottles is expensive, wasteful, and will drive mom-and-pop producers under. That would reduce the variety of oils and the complexity of flavors, in short, undermining what makes olive oil a delicacy. Another restaurant manager in Barcelona named Ana is equally incensed. What will we have to give our clients, she asks, those little ketchup-like packages you get at takeout places like McDonald's? 
The olive oil uproar comes at a bad time for Brussels, with Euroscepticism already on the rise. One leading German paper called it the weirdest decision since the legendary Kirby Cucumber Regulation. That norm was meant to define the legal shape of dozens of fruits and vegetables in Europe. It was repealed in 2009. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Well, here's another way the European Union can be annoying, by insisting that everything it says or writes be communicated in all of the EU's official languages. There are 23 of those, 24 soon after Croatia joins. That's a mountain of translation. But at the EU, the credo has always been unity is diversity, even if it costs millions or holds back Europe's global competitiveness. Ah, petty details. We have this report from Don Duncan in Brussels. You might wonder, when most, if not all, EU bureaucrats master English, what's the point in maintaining 23 official languages? Why not just use a single language, like English? It's tempting, of course. With English, you get through everywhere in the whole world. That's Andrea Daman, head of communications for the translation unit of the European Commission. On the other hand, I'm always saying, if you want to do business, you've got to speak the language of the client. And in order to speak the language of the client, that's the 27 member states, a long, complex and time-consuming chain of tasks needs to happen. A delegate delivers a speech, for example, in his native Latvian. That speech is taken up by dozens of interpreters who simultaneously translate into their respective languages or tune into the English interpretation and work from that. Meanwhile, an official release of the speech is produced. This is sent to the translation unit and again, either directly or via English, a separate group of text-based translators gets to work. As the EU gets larger, critics of the multilingual system are becoming more vocal. Shada Islam is with the prominent Brussels think tank Friends of Europe. She says that the process is costly, unproductive and most of all, unnecessary. We're spending too much money, time and energy on this language issue. The world is moving fast, the world is moving ahead and we need to be looking at other ways of fostering diversity and inclusiveness. And you do really need to have a common understanding. Um, And I think that's where English came in as the natural um, language that everybody spoke. While more and more respected public policy organisations are calling for establishing English as the language of the EU, the idea remains politically toxic. English is, after all, the language of the most Eurosceptic country, the UK. What's more, France and Germany are very touchy when it comes to having their languages eclipsed by English. Regardless of sentiment, EU officials argue that using any single language wouldn't be democratic or in the shared spirit of the Union. Uh, Scholars in the Netherlands, Belgium and Israel looked at how you understand translation as part of other writing systems. This translation classroom in Dublin City University is another reason why the EU won't drop its multilingual policy anytime soon. It creates jobs. Translation is a robust growth industry in a time of recession. All of our graduates have been snapped up. Dorothy Kenny, a senior lecturer at Dublin City University's translation programme, says that a half dozen translation courses have sprung up across Ireland since Irish became an official language in 2007. The programmes now produce 50 graduates annually and their job prospects 
are excellent. I think it's wonderful because uh, people can gain economic benefit from their bilingualism. And it's something that has brought benefit to other parts of the world where people are bilingual. Officially, very few people actually speak Irish daily. And then there are countries like Malta, Estonia and Latvia with tiny populations. It's all created major headaches for the translation unit, which currently spends an additional $90,000 yearly coaxing young people towards careers in translation. For sceptics like Shada Islam, this increasingly expensive commitment to multilingualism is absurd and dishonest. Europeans believe very much, or at least they, they think they should believe very much in diversity and in inclusion, and everyone's equal. I mean, it's, it's an artificial uh, mental setup, if you like, because we aren't. Everybody's not equal. They're big powers. There's Germany. There's France. So we're not all equal. But despite the growing costs and complexity and the growing scepticism from outside the EU institutions, the union is holding course and shows no sign of shifting. When Croatian becomes the EU's 24th official language in July, the cost of the union's commitment to multilingualism will nudge up to an estimated $1.5 billion a year. For The World, this is Don Duncan in Brussels. And you can hear more language stories in our podcast, The World in Words. You can find that at theworld.org. In the latest podcast, a preview of tonight's Webby Awards. The Webbies are the Internet equivalent of the Oscars. They hand out awards for the best websites and online films and videos. Winners' acceptance speeches are famously limited to five words. Here are a couple from last year. Happy is the new rich. Uh, When I die, (laughs) bye-bye. Writer John Cray says the five-word rule has both pros and cons. It has its advantages in that if it's boring, it's over really quickly. But I do think that one of the pleasures of the Oscar speeches are the kind of car crash potential. And when you're down to five words, even if you're boring, it's unlikely to be a total car crash. I'd like to thank my... Well, there's five words right there. Anyway, we have more on the webbies and words in The World and Words at theworld.org. And before we turn to our geo-quiz, here's a quick news flash from the world of soccer. A new team will be joining Major League Soccer here in the U.S. The New York City Football Club is expected to join the league in 2015. The team will be owned by Manchester City, a top soccer team in Europe with plenty of cash to pay MLS's $100 million new franchise fee. Manchester City is itself owned by a member of Abu Dhabi's royal family. And his partners in this new American soccer venture are none other than baseball's New York Yankees. You know, in case the Gulf oil money runs out or something. We have a nautical geo-quiz for you now. There's a new study out about the risk of ocean pollution caused by shipwrecks. Everything from pirate ships that sank with chests full of gold to oil tankers that have gone down in more modern times... Many of them could still be leaking something toxic into the sea. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has come up with a map of the many, many shipwrecks that dot U.S. coastal waters. So the question for you is, how many shipwrecked vessels are there off U.S. coastlines? This is multiple choice today. So A, 200, B, 2,000, C, 20,000, or D, 200,000. Give us your best shot. We'll speak with an expert on U.S. coastal waters and the shipwrecks that lie beneath them when we come back with the answer in just a minute. A quick shout-out to a few of our texting game winners today. 
Lila in Rock Creek, North Carolina, Trip in Breckenridge, Colorado, and Manuel in Cutton, California all picked the right number of shipwrecks. We'll do the numbers in a minute. That's just enough time to text GEOQUIZ, one word to 69866, to play along next time. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today we put a multiple-choice question to our listeners about how many shipwreck vessels there are off our coast. The options were 200, 2,000, 20,000, or 200,000. So Lisa Simons is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. What is the right answer? 20,000. That's mind-boggling. 20,000 shipwrecks. How many of these shipwrecks are worrisome potential polluters? NOAA has recommended that 17 of those shipwrecks be considered for in-water pollution assessments and potential recovery actions. Of those, we think six are the of most concern for what we call a most probable leak or a 10% leak of the contents of those vessels. How did they sink and what's the source of the potential pollution on board? The majority of these vessels were sunk during World War II. Many of them were sunk during the Battle of the Atlantic. Those obviously were sunk by the Germans. We also had a number of vessels sunk off the Pacific coast that were sunk by the Japanese. So given that the majority of these vessels are World War II-era vessels, there are bunker sea, medium fuel oils, as well as light fuel oils. And it was both the cargo that these vessels were carrying or the fuel that they actually used to operate. Now, those six particular shipwrecks, uh, you've been uh, quoted as saying that they keep you up at night. Uh, Which ones are they, where are they, and why are they big concerns for you? There are six ships out of the 20,000 that we looked at that came down to be significant pollution threats at a 10% release level. So that's 10% of the remaining contents on board would still have a significant socioeconomic and ecological impact to the U.S. coastline. And one of those vessels is up off of the coast of New England, and it's actually the first casualty of World War II. That's the Norness. And then there are five vessels off the coast of Florida, the Gulf State, the S.O. Gettysburg, the W.D. Anderson, the George McDonald, and the Joseph M. Cudahy. We know where the Norness is, and we know where three of the five off of Florida are, but we don't have a confirmed location for the other two vessels. All we have are the last known locations after they were shelled by U-boats. So give us one example. The Gulf State off the Florida Keys sounds like a particularly worrisome case. It was sunk by a German U-boat. How much pollution, how much oil is aboard that might leak out? The Gulf State has 86,000 barrels of crude oil on board potentially. So we don't know for sure if it still has that full amount of oil on board or if it's got something less than that. Generally, we see something less because of how that particular vessel was hit. And I don't happen to remember for Gulf State how many times that particular vessel was hit, but it makes a difference in where the torpedoes impacted the vessels and whether it hit the fuel compartments or it hit the engine room as to how much fuel we may have lost during the casualty. And so we're seeing more and more vessels of this era start to have chronic leaks, and we're concerned that this could continue to be an ongoing problem. Lisa, how do you conduct a salvage operation of oil? Are we talking about vacuuming up the pollutants or raising the whole ship? We're not talking about raising the whole ship. They basically pump the oil out. They don't quite vacuum it, but they do pump it. So they'll literally drill into those tanks, and they'll use what's called a hot tap, which is a special lance that would heat the oil up and make it liquid, and then they can pump that oil up to special tanks on the surface on a barge or on the response vessel, 
and then that oil will either be recycled or disposed of. If you think about the work that was done on Deepwater Horizon, that was extremely deep water. They've also done extremely deep recoveries on the Prestige off of Spain. Most of these vessels are certainly not as deep as the Deepwater Horizon, so they're in manageable water depths either for saturation diving or ROV operations. Lisa Simons of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration telling us about her new study called the 2012 Risk Assessment for Potentially Polluting Wrecks in U.S. Waters. Lisa, thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you can see that telling map of shipwrecked vessels off U.S. coastlines. It's at theworld.org. Finally today, Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player for The Doors and co-founder of the band with Jim Morrison, died yesterday at the age of 74. Manzarek's sound with The Doors was second only to Morrison's voice, whether it was in his solos as in Riders on the Storm... or the lead lines to Light My Fire or Hello, I Love You. Since the announcement of Ray Manzarek's death, there have been lots of tributes to him and his legacy. And as a lover of what Manzarek begat, I wanted to make sure the world properly recognized his influence. Now, the electronic organ asserted itself on all manner of rock and pop in the 60s and 70s. But Ray Manzarek's jazzy thinking and how that emerged from his keyboard, well, he created an improvisational sound that artists around the globe wanted to emulate. It was an American sound, and all you had to do was plug in. Ain't that right, Napo de mi amor? In Togo, in West Africa, the band leader, Napo de Mi Amor, and his band, the Black Devils, recorded this tune, Leki Sanchi. It was 1975, four years after Jim Morrison's death. And for the track Leki Sanchi, Napo set his electronic organ to a local Togolese rhythm called Krugnima. neighboring Nigeria, the Tony Benson sextet, was all about the keyboard. Here's Benson's instrumental hit, Ugali, from 1972. One more pit stop of Ray Manzarek-inspired keyboard playing, Cuba, and a track that was actually born in the U.S., a one-hit wonder for the band, the Ides of March, called Vehicle. Remember that? Here, though, the organ stands in for the vocals for Havana-based Orquesta Cubana de Musica Moderna. I guess they'd have called it vehicle. <laughs>
And since it's such a great cover, we'll make it our walk-off music today. Rediscover who these bands are at theworld.org. We're online 24-7. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, you've been listening to The World. I'm Marco Werman. Back tomorrow. Production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.